I want to take as my text this morning a portion of the first part of that reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, and I want us to concentrate on verses 3 through 6. If you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 1159, Ephesians chapter 1, and beginning at verse 3, which I'd like you to look at that with me again. Beginning at verse 3. And Paul's writing to the believers at Ephesus in the middle of the first century. And he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, or in the beloved Son. This morning I want to talk about three, re three reasons why God is worthy of praise. Three reasons why God is worthy of praise. Now, truth be told, within the entirety of uh, today's reading from Paul's letter to the believers at Ephesus, namely verses 3 through 14, which in the Greek is one long uh, sentence, Paul actually mentions not less than 10 reasons why God is worthy of praise if we're believers in God through his son, Jesus Christ. But in the interest of time, and perhaps to your great relief, I'd like to focus on the first three as they appear in today's uh, text, the first four verses, verses three through six. And the first is, is that God is worthy of praise because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. God is worthy of praise because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Notice again, verse 3, And blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so God is worthy of praise. Indeed, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word is, the, 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 what we have turned into a phrase is actually just a single word, blessed be God. It's a, it's a traditional Jewish ascription of praise to God, meaning that God is, you're worthy of praise, blessed are you. And so Paul says that, that we bless God, and we praise God, we worship God, if you like, because God has blessed us or benefited us. That, by the way, is always the rhythm from Genesis to Revelation. And in our personal experience now, in these contemporary moments, that's the rhythm in which it works. God is always the one who acts first. He's always the initiator. And then we respond. In fact, Massey Hamilton Shepherd, in his book, The Worship of the Church, wrote this. He said, God in his love, in his love for, all, for us, always takes the initiative. God in his love for us always takes the initiative. 
and hence our worship of him is at best described in terms of a response. And so Paul says that we bless God, we praise God, we worship God because God has acted, because God has blessed and benefited us. Indeed, Paul says that uh, God has blessed us if we're believers in him. In fact, notice that verse 1, it wasn't part of our reading, but notice who Paul's talking to. Verse 1, it says, And Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and he's writing what? To the holy ones, or to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And so this is a message for you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And Paul says that God has blessed us as believers in Christ. That is to say, by means of spiritual union. In fact, that very last phrase, uh, 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 verse 6, is in the beloved, with reference to Christ. And um, a sort of an echo of the baptism experience, you know, since we were reading about John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptized Jesus, you remember, and we have it in Matthew 3 and other, other texts uh, in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, and um, when Jesus came up out of the water, we're told that the heavens split and the Spirit of God descended on the Son like a dove and a voice, the Father's voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is at the heart of what it means to be justified and acceptable to God because we're in Christ. We're in the beloved. And so when the Father looks at us, he sees us in the Son and he says, I am well pleased. And Paul says that God has blessed us and he does the blessing within the realm or the sphere of our union with his beloved Son. And then Paul says that, and God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice Paul says every spiritual blessing, not just some spiritual blessings, and some of them are listed here in his letter to the Ephesians. Not some, but every spiritual blessing, which Paul describes uh, as these uh, blessings in the heavenly places. Which is another way of saying that these blessings originate with God in heaven, where his special presence is on display. It made me think of something that Jesus said, you know, John chapter 14 and verse 27. I'll just read it so I make sure I don't misquote it. But Jesus said, peace I leave with you. And then he, said, and then he continues very interestingly, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, my peace. And then he says, not as the world gives, do I give to you. His peace doesn't, in, it doesn't originate in the world. In fact, you all know that the peace in the world is always circumstantial. And when circumstances aren't good, people lose their sense of peace and contentment. But he says, I'm giving you a peace that comes from me. It's my kind of peace. The kind of peace that, uh, that Paul experienced, as we talked about last week, or Jesus experienced, even when he's in the midst of his trials. So a, 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 a divine kind of peace, a, a heavenly kind of peace. And all of these blessings, Paul says, are those blessings that come from or originate in heavenly places. 
And so that's the first thing. God is worthy of praise because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Secondly, Paul says that, uh, that, uh, that uh, God is worthy of praise because uh, he has chosen us. What an extraordinary thing. Notice that verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so Paul says that God has chosen us. If you're a believer, you're amongst the chosen. He says it right there. In fact, this idea of election and being chosen is found all throughout the Bible. And the idea of God um, um, uh, initiating a relationship. For instance, Abraham. Abraham was, a, was, a, was an idol, worship in the, idol worshiper in the Ur of the Chaldees. He wasn't looking for the... He wasn't saying, you know what, I, I'm looking for the true God. No, the true God came to him and said, I have plans for you. And I'm going to call you and I'm going to send you into a land that later I'm going to give to you and your descendants as a possession. And so on. But he's the one who does the choosing. It's interesting in the Greek, it's in the middle voice, which if we fully understand the meaning, it literally means that God chooses us for himself. He chooses you for himself. Indeed, God's choosing is very specific. Those whom he's chosen have names, they live in certain places, they're real people, and he chooses them for himself. And so it's not just specific, it's extremely personal. He knows whom he's chosen. And you, you see this language all the time in the, in the Bible. Jesus said, I know my sheep and my sheep know me, and I call them all by name. And then later in John 10, he says to those, his detractors, he says, you don't listen to me, you know why? Because you're not my sheep. And on and on, this idea of election and choosing and God knowing and God seeking and establishing relationship. Fleming Rutledge in her magnus opus, the book called The Crucifixion, she comments on this specific and personal nature of, of God's choosing people for himself. She wrote this. She said, the God of the Bible sometimes refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <laughs> An extraordinary thing. You know, when we came to Moses, Moses said, well, when I go back to Egypt, I don't even know your name. And he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What a choice. He chooses to call himself with reference to those whom he calls and those whom he chooses she says, the God of the Bible sometimes refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as we read in Exodus 3 and verse 6. And God said to Moses, I am the God of, of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Rutledge continues, the, the particularity of God is startling, she says. The God of Israel aligns himself with specific people, with individual names who live in identifiable places on the map. They have life stories unique to themselves, which are by no means always edifying stories. This God has chosen of his own sovereign free will to elect a specific group of people simply because he wills to do so. 
This election has nothing to do with any spiritual attainment reached by the chosen ones. Indeed, they are selected, we might say, even in spite of themselves. And this factor of undeserved election is in view whenever God is called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The word Jacob means usurper, conniver. <laughs> and God associates with that. Jacob have I chosen, Esau have I rejected. And so God's choosing isn't general or impersonal, but rather it's specific and personal. In fact, you'll remember the words of Jesus, right? John chapter 15 and verse 16, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit. Indeed, we don't choose God. I don't know what your experience is, but I wasn't even looking for him. In fact, I wasn't, <laughs> God was the last thing I was interested in when he took charge, and I was happy that he did after, but that was after. <laughs> if, you read, if you read on in the, in the letter to the Ephesians, you come to the second chapter, and he's talking to them again, that these believers in the first century, and he's talking about their past experience. He said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were spiritually dead. And then you come down to verses 4, 5, and 6, and he says, but God, who's rich in mercy, he made you alive. And then you get to verse 8, and it says, and by grace we're saved through faith. And that really is the order. And there's many metaphors that talk about this. That you're dead, he makes you alive, and you believe. And that's exactly just the way it happens. Isn't it interesting when, uh, when, Paul, or when Jesus had this discussion with Nicodemus? Nicodemus came to him and he said, Oh, well, Rabbi, he said, We know you come from God because nobody can do these marvelous works that you do. And Jesus said, um, You must believe in order to enter the kingdom of God. But that's not what he said, did he? <laughs> he said something even more basic. He said, You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Now, I don't know how it worked with you, but I didn't get myself born. That was something that happened to me very passively, but very truly. And here I am. It happened. And that's just how it happens with God and how it happens with us. We don't choose God. God chooses us. And when we respond, we do so because God has chosen us. As someone has written, Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. The difference between those who are called and those who are chosen is that those who are chosen don't just hear the call, they answer it. Listen to that again. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. The difference between those who are called and the chosen is that the chosen don't just hear the call, they answer it. In Acts chapter 13, and there's so... Again, there are so many examples of this that we haven't the time to go over all of them, but I'm giving you some of them. Acts chapter 13 and verse 48, it says, And when the Gentiles heard the message of Paul, they began to rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, 
believed. And so who believed? According to Luke, those who were appointed by God unto eternal life. God's chosen. They're the ones who believe. They're the ones who respond to the call. And Paul says that uh, we are chosen in Christ. Again, everything happens in Him. And then Paul says that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. What an extraordinary thing. It's like... Um, we might, have, we might have thought of uh, our relationship with God sort of beginning maybe when we made some kind of a decision or, or when we started going to church or uh, we went to camp when we were teenagers or, or whenever it was. We would, usually the, that would be the time where we would think, well, this is when it all began. And Paul is saying, no, 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 you don't understand. It, became, it, beca it, becomes, uh, it, it was a reality in God's eternal mind before he even he spoke the world into existence, that we're chosen before the foundation of the world. And so God's choosing isn't some kind of an afterthought with you. Rather, God's choosing of you is an eternal thought. Before you were born, before God called the world into existence, from all eternity, you have been God's chosen. And Paul says, and we are chosen that we should be holy and blameless before God. You know, this whole idea, well, I'll, well I'm chosen, so I got a free ticket into, you know how people think, I got a free ticket, you know, now I can go live for the devil, you know, and do the things I really want to do. <laughs> Good night. You don't want to live for the devil. God has chosen us that, he, Paul says, that we might be holy and blameless before the Father. In fact, in Colossians uh, chapter 3 and beginning at verse 12, again, because this theme is found in many places, this is what Paul says as it relates to being chosen and holy life. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. He says, and, and put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassion, and kindness, put on humility and meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. For the Lord has forgiven you, and so you also must forgive. It's a message to who? <laughs> As God's chosen ones. That's what the chosen do. Notice, holy living is not a prerequisite of God's choosing. You don't have to be good to get chosen. Well, how could you? You're chosen before the foundation of the world. How do you get before that? Holy living is not a prerequisite of God's choosing, but rather holy living is the intended effect and result of God's choosing. Notice again, verse 4. Even as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Or other scriptures, Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. God saved us not because of works we've done in our righteousness, but according to his mercy. You don't earn it, 
And a good thing, too. You know why? Because you can't. I can't. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul writes, And God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That same theme. Ephesians, this same letter to the Ephesians, this famous passage, Ephesians chapter 2 and beginning at verse 8, for by grace, that it's unmerited favor, pure gift, by pure gift we have been saved, delivered from the, from, the, from the righteous judgment due to sin. For by grace you have been saved or delivered, and it comes through faith. And yet even that is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared, if you like, or foreordained that we should walk in them. He's, God is thinking about all of this in the eternal now. Before the creation of the world, he knows your name. He knows how he's going to deliver you. He knows how he's going to bear fruit to you. And of course, the mystery of it is, as you experience it, you don't feel like some kind of a puppet. You're making choices. In fact, I went to the service, as I've told you many times, as a teenager, uh, where I didn't want to be, but God opened my heart. And I, my response to the gospel was, yeah, okay, I'll serve you. I mean, that was the enthusiasm. I'm like, okay, this seems like the right thing to do. I think I'm going to do that. And that was the beginning of the whole rest of my life. And God knew he was going to do that. God knew that I would be talking to you today. Although I had to prepare yesterday. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, I got some things for do, and I, I wrote the sermon for you. Well, thank you, Lord. Now I can watch more TV. It doesn't work that way. Man, you're engaged. But God is doing it. And Paul says, I, I, I did more than all the other apostles in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I did more than all of them, and yet not I, but the grace of God working through me. And so that's the second thing, that God is worthy of praise because he has chosen us. Finally, Paul says that God is worthy of praise because he's predestined us. How extraordinary. Notice verses 5 and 6. In love, <laughs> the motivation of love. Here, here's look. Here's the naked truth. The naked truth is this: is if God leaves us to ourselves in a state of spiritual death, dead in our trespasses and sins, and is waiting around for us to do something, it will never happen because we're spiritually dead, and we need to be made alive. It's like going to a funeral and going up to the corpse that's on display, the remains, and trying to strike up a conversation or being so foolish as to ask them to do, to do something for you. <laughs> we have to be made alive by His gracious engagement. He must initiate, otherwise nothing ever happens. And so then all of us are just judged according to justice 
And God won't uh, judge us for things we didn't do, but He will judge us for the things that we did do. And, and He'll be completely just for doing so. In fact, sometimes we get to kind of confused about all of these concepts of, of, uh, of grace and mercy and justice. Listen. Justice is giving to other people what they deserve. That's justice. Mercy is when you come in and deliver them from the penalties that they deserve. That's mercy. Grace is, is when you're guilty, God is not only delivering you from what you deserve, He gives you a gift on top of that. That's grace. Favor that's completely unmerited, unearned. In fact, if it was earned, as Paul makes the argument in the 11th chapter of Romans, then it isn't grace anymore. And so sometimes people will object to this and say, well, that's not very fair. What? This transcends fairness. If God is just going to be fair, He just allows us all to be judged. The fact that He comes in and, and grants what we're talking about here to people who don't deserve it has nothing to do with deserving it. It's complete gift, complete grace. All founded and grounded in the sacrifice of Christ. It's not by works lest anyone should boast. But God is worthy of praise because He's predestined us. I think I was going to start reading verse 5. Yes, verse 5. In love He predestined us. That's the motivation. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And so Paul says that God has predestined us if we're believing. If we're acting like the chosen, that seems to be the case. Proorizo is the Greek word. It literally means to set up boundaries, to direct one to his or her foreordained destiny. That's what it means to be predestined. Again, listen to, what the, listen to the words of, of Luke again in Acts chapter 13. And when the Gentiles heard the message of Paul, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's the setting out of boundaries and God's eternal plan unfolding before the eyes of men. Unfolding in the lives of these people who go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive and praising God because of his extraordinary word. In particular, Paul says that uh, God has predestined us for adoption. Now, this is really interesting. This concept of adoption, the Apostle Paul talks quite a bit about it, and it was very much a part of Roman culture and Roman society. Being adopted is uh, the establishing of a new family relationship with all the rights and privileges and responsibilities, and especially within the Roman culture as it relates to becoming an heir to the one who is adopting you. In fact, uh, in, in Roman society, a, 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 a wealthy estate owner who didn't have a son 
or children to whom uh, he could, uh, could um, pass on his wealth and power and privilege, he oftentimes would adopt his favorite slave that worked in his, in, on his estate and in his business. And, and that person would become his, his heir to, all, to his estate, to everything that he owned. And when that man died, then this, he, he would be the lord of the manor and inherit everything. And so this concept of adoption here has Paul, no doubt, is thinking just like this in his mind of, 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 of being heir, adopted, not adopted by, by uh, Marcus Aurelius, <laughs> adopted by God and being heir to all that belongs to God. In fact, in the same passage in verse 11, we have, the, we have similar uh, language and other language to b- bring, bear what I'm saying. Uh, in verse 11, chapter 1 and verse 11, in Christ, he says, we've obtained an inheritance. <laughs> of course we have, because why? We've been adopted by God. In Christ, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined. <laughs> according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if we're children of God, we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ is the natural son And we're all the adopted heirs. And we become co-heirs with him. With whom we are spiritually united. You can see why Paul gets so excited about this. Paul says that God adopts us to himself. That's exactly what he says. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ to himself. He adopts us as sons. Now that's a, a, it's critical that the word son is used here because that was the way it happened uh, in Roman times. Uh, The New English translation makes it clearer for us and says legal heirs. Paul says that uh, God adopts us according to the purpose of his will. It's as a sovereign act of grace. Indeed, God doesn't have to do it. Rather, God wants to do it, and there isn't anybody who can keep him from doing it. Barbara Brown Taylor, in her book called The Preaching Life, she wrote this. She said, God is greater than mine imagination. God is wiser than my wisdom, more dazzling than the universe, and as present to me as the air I breathe, and utterly beyond my control. He does this not because he has to. Listen, let me disabuse anybody who thinks that, that he or she can put God under any kind of obligation. God always does what is good and right. There's no, he's not like the Greek gods that have superhuman powers and then the, the capriciousness of, of human rulers and people. 
He's all good and all holy and all righteous and all just. And he always does what's good. You don't need to pressurize him. And you can anyway to make him do what's good or right. He's utterly beyond our control. And Paul says that the ultimate purpose for God predestinating us to adoption is the praise of his glorious grace. Notice again, beginning of verse 5. In love he predestined us for the adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And he write in his book, Simple Christianity, wrote this. He said, when we begin to glimpse the reality of God, the natural reaction is to worship him. <laughs> Not to have this reaction is a fairly sure sign that we haven't really understood who he is or what he does. And that's pretty much what Paul is doing in our text. He's worshiping God in response to all that God is and all that God does. And so how about you? What is your response going to be this morning to these things? Three reasons why God is worthy of praise. Let us pray. Whoever it was who said it, it's true, Lord. You're God. <laughs> and we're not. And yet your mercy toward us, your grace toward us, that any, any of us, no matter who we may be, can count on you to, to never give any of us less than what is just and good. And then to think of your mercy and your kindness. In fact, Jesus himself made that argument to love your enemies as yourself because God loves his enemies. He makes the, the rain to fall and the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. In fact, you're more than just just. You're merciful and gracious to all of us. And perhaps with some even more so, not because any of us deserve it, but it's in keeping with your divine plan. So these are extraordinary things. Give us a heart and mind to grasp them in some way, even though we may not be able to grasp them completely, and that, that these wonderful truths might have some powerful transformative effect on our lives. If nothing else, to give us grateful hearts and to turn to you in worship. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.